Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond talks to Dr. Brian Garibaldi, a pulmonologist and critical care expert at Johns Hopkins. He is treating patients who have been hospitalized with COVID-19 and speaks about what it's like to be on the front lines of this pandemic and how he and his colleagues are preparing for the worst. Let's listen. Today I'm here with Brian Garibaldi, a pulmonologist at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Today we're talking about what it's like to treat patients with COVID-19, the disease being caused by the coronavirus. Brian, thanks for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you're really on the front lines here. You are working in the ICUs at Hopkins and seeing patients with um, this new illness. What does it look like? And how does it look different, perhaps, than other things you've seen in the past? Well, I think it's been a, an extraordinary experience so far and, and obviously very um, unusual times. You know, it's not very often that you get to encounter patients who have a completely new disease. And I think those of us who have been seeing these patients uh, from the beginning here at Hopkins, but all across the country and the world really feel um, an incredible sense of urgency to try to make sure that we're paying attention to what we're seeing in our patients, trying to make observations that might potentially impact the way that we care for patients more effectively, uh, but also really being mindful that how we respond in the early on is going to set precedent for how we take care of these patients. So being really mindful of you know, trying to use the best evidence in terms of choosing different treatment options and really being mindful of, of making sure that we're in touch with our colleagues who are doing both clinical and basic science research so that, you know, not only we're providing care for these patients, but we're really contributing to how we move forward and hopefully positively impact the rest of this epidemic. So what, when someone's really sick, what, uh, how is that manifesting itself? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing we've seen in terms of our sickest patients are, are problems with respiratory failure. And so many patients, particularly the ones that we see in the hospital, we know that they have inflammation in their lungs. Um, and what we haven't yet been able to really figure out is, is identifying the patients who are going to go on to develop worsening problems with their lungs and require higher levels of oxygen or, or perhaps even to be put on a breathing machine versus those patients who, you know, maybe will have a little bit of inflammation, maybe require some supportive care, but then ultimately get better in a, in a reasonably fast period of time. So the patients who are getting sick um, almost across the board are more short of breath. They're breathing faster uh, than they normally would. And we're, you know, a normal respiratory rate is somewhere between 12 and 15 times per minute. But you know, we're seeing lots of patients who are breathing in the 20s or even 30s and working pretty hard to breathe. Um, and that usually corresponds to people who have a need for more oxygen. Um, and that's really when, when patients start requiring supplemental oxygen, that's when we really start worrying about whether or not they're going to require intensive unit, uh, intensive care unit care, uh, and also trying to identify the patients who might need a breathing machine. Because one of the things that's different about caring for these patients is that it takes time 
to get into your gear and to be able to get into a patient's room if they're not doing well. And so we really have to be very proactive in identifying who might need that extra support so we can get them to the units that can handle that, but also that we can get the right providers into their gear to help those patients who are in uh, urgent need. So you're saying if there was a real emergency that came up, it would take a while for you to go in and be able to treat that person. That's true. And, and that, that really has implications for our normal care processes in the hospital. You know, the, the normal codes that, that we hear about, you know, where God forbid someone's heart stops or they stop breathing, you know, that does take time for you to make sure that you're protecting yourself and protecting the rest of the team to be able to respond to those events. So we're, we're really hoping that the protocols we put into place and the monitoring that we have in place can help us identify those patients early so that we can really minimize the number of times where there's an unexpected emergency where people have to rush into the room because in this particular climate, you, you can't do that safely. I'm interested in how it might feel differently in the hospital these days. I imagine someone's got COVID-19, they don't have friends and family able to visit them. Are you sensing in your patients uh, sort of a different level of isolation that is maybe detrimental to even their care? Yeah, I, I would say that things are definitely different and that it's it's true for certainly our patients who don't have the physical support networks that they normally have in the hospital. It's very weird going through the hospital now and not seeing anyone other than physicians because that's really all your and, and other healthcare providers and staff. I mean, usually the hospital is a, a bustling metropolis with thousands of people going about their daily lives. It's very odd to be walking through the hallway and just seeing people who work at the hospital. Um, you know, I think for many of our patients, um, they're, they're relying on, you know, their smartphones and other ways of, of trying to keep in touch with friends and family. It certainly has been a, a different experience for us as providers not being able to you know, meet face to face with families, and we're you know we're doing the same things, relying on our phones and and sometimes you know FaceTiming or or other ways of of connecting with families to keep them you know on top of what's happening. And I think that's a little bit different. We oftentimes just rely on walking into the room and saying hi to people's loved ones and being able to update everyone together. So that's added a a different uh, aspect to our, to our care. I also worry about the the connections for our providers. You know, it's very odd to be in the hospital but have to socially distance from each other. And, and I think that's something that we're we're getting used to, we're getting better about. But the whole idea of rounding together as a group and that community that you develop with doctors and nurses and pharmacists and respiratory therapists and all the all the members of the team that normally would meet together and huddle, you know, social work and case management, we've had to move all of those essentially to virtual communications, uh, either through email or through, we, we use a lot of, you know, online chat platforms here to, to try to facilitate those discussions. But, you know, I haven't physically touched a person without gear on in over two and a half weeks. And that, I think that has unanticipated consequences in terms of the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with our families and loved ones. And that's certainly true for our patients, but I think it's also true for all the staff in the hospital as well. You talked about uh, talking to families. Clearly, we're not at the peak of this yet here in Maryland, for example, where you work. Are you worried about having to make some really serious decisions based on, uh, for example, a lack of, of ventilators in the future? Yeah, so I think um, our hospital has been thinking about these issues for many, many years. And actually, Maryland, um, several years ago, actually had a statewide committee that was led by a number of people here at Hopkins, uh, including Lee Doherty Bittison, who's um, uh, one of our critical care providers, and, and engaging the community 
about, you know, if there was a pandemic, how would you want to see scarce resources allocated across the community? And so the people who were initially involved in those studies several years ago have been meeting across not just the Hopkins Health System, but across all health systems in Maryland to try to figure out what advice and support we can give to the governor and the state legislature about, you know, how we should approach those difficult decisions. And, you know, I, I hope and pray that we don't get to that point here in Maryland. Um, but I think it's our responsibility to think about what we would do if and when, God forbid, we get to that point. And we're just starting to, you know, we have some drafts of those types of, of policies and, you know, how you approach those decisions. Um, and hopefully they'll, they'll very soon be, be able to be shared more broadly. Um, and, but I do think it's important. And, and these discussions are happening. I've seen it on social media. I've seen it in, in uh, newspapers. I've seen it even in the literature, people beginning to, to lay out the framework by which you could justify you know, allocating resources to one individual patient over another. And there are a number of ethical issues and a number of difficult questions that come in related to pre-existing conditions, age, likelihood of survival, all of those things that, you know, go into these types of decisions. It's, it's interesting though. I mean, we do, in other aspects of our medical care, we do, we do actually make those decisions, you know, for example, in allocating transplant resources to, to folks or, or access to certain interventions. Um, so I think there is precedent in doing it, but never something to this wide scale really having to decide who gets to live and who gets to die. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, the way I, I, none of us really ever get to make that decision, right. That's out of our hands, but, um, you know, certainly in, in how we message that to patients and their families and, and how we make sure that there's a process in place so that everyone understands that if we get to this point, these are the measures that we're using, making sure it's transparent, but also making sure as communication becomes more difficult to making sure that everyone understands if those policies go into place, how it affects them and their loved ones, I think is going to be critically important. And if we ever get to that point. So we talked about um, gearing up to go into patients' rooms. I know that there's a lot of concern about shortages of supplies for protective equipment for medical staff. Um, Tell me how that's playing out at the moment. Yeah, I think um, we're very fortunate here at Hopkins. You know, our supply chain is just in- incredibly staffed up in terms of trying to deal with shortages and supplies, and, and they've been working and anticipating that this might happen for months. So right now, we certainly are, uh, we don't have an infinite supply of gear, but right now, all of our frontline providers have the gear that they need to provide safe care to their patients and while keeping themselves and their colleagues safe. We're actively looking at solutions to figure out how can we repurpose gear, how can we minimize the use of gear so only the patients and providers that need that gear are using it appropriately right now, uh, really working on workflow to minimize the number of times that providers have to go into a patient's room and, and making sure that we're setting up other ways of checking in with our patients to make sure that we're not losing uh, valuable information by not spending as much time with our room. You know, one of my big jobs prior to uh, this outbreak was was working on um, teaching clinical skills to our house staff. And, you know, we had an active initiative to try to increase the amount of time that we spend with patients and their families at the bedside. Um, and obviously, that is not something that we can physically do right now. Um, but I think leveraging that uh, that energy around the importance of that time with patients to try to figure out what other things we can put into place to ensure that we're 
spending the time that we need both to make medical decisions, but also to make sure that our patients are getting what they need from us. Um, I think that's a huge challenge and, and um, lots of great ideas are, are starting to surface as to how we can do that better. And house staff, for those who don't know, interns, residents, fellows, is that? That's correct. Sorry. Yeah. House staff uh, refers to um, all of our physician, you know, physicians who already have their MDs, but are now doing their subspecialty uh, or specialty training. So I wanted to talk a little about treatment, treatment options that you have. And I know that there's been a lot of news about the use of malaria drugs, perhaps, to to treat patients uh, with COVID-19. Um, there's been a lot of controversy about it. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I, th I think this is where I was mentioning earlier, you know, we're, we're being watched in terms of how we approach these therapies in the early going. There, there's been a lot of excitement about a number of different potential treatment opportunities. I think hydroxychloroquine, which is one of the therapies that, that everyone's been talking about, at this point, we really don't have data that shows that it works um, in this particular disease. There's lots of reasons to hope that it might, but just like many other therapies that have come before that, what works in a test tube or in animal models or what makes biologic sense does not always lead to the outcome you would expect in people. And so, uh, you know, I think across the country, we're using a lot of hydroxychloroquine right now. And thankfully, there are a number of studies that are now just coming online that are hopefully going to be able to answer the question within a very short period of time, is this something that we should be offering to our patients? And if so, which are the patients that are most likely to benefit? And, you know, for me personally, um, you know, I've actually enrolled myself into a trial of hydroxychloroquine for post-exposure prophylaxis, meaning, you know, for people who have been exposed to patients, this study includes, you know, contacts of patients in the community, family members and friends of confirmed cases, but also healthcare workers who have been taking care of patients but wearing personal protective equipment. And I really feel um, the reason I signed up for that study is I really feel like this is my ability to immediately kind of add to the data that we have about this drug and to, to see if it's number one safe and number two has a role to play. And, and I hope that it will, but I think we have to maintain a pretty healthy dose of skepticism right now and resist the urge to give this medicine to everyone. We all want to do something to help our patients, but sometimes doing something can be more harmful than doing nothing. And I think we need to keep that in mind, and this has to be a case-by-case -case discussion with every patient and their provider to decide, is this something I want to do outside of a clinical trial? We've talked a lot about patients, and for my last question, I'd like to ask about you. Um, are you afraid that you're going to get sick? Well, you know, um, I think I have an appropriate level of concern that that uh, myself or one of my colleagues might get sick. I, you know, I really believe in our processes and protocols. I believe in the gear that we wear, and I believe in my teammates. I think at this point, the risk for us getting sick is much higher outside of our protective gear and outside of our units than it is in our units. And by that, I mean, you know, being out in the community. Um, you know, I'm very mindful about my spacing, but other people are not. You know, like, I've, I've had to physically put up my hand in front of someone and tell them to back away from me. Um, because, you know, I think right now that this is rising in our communities and, and, you know, we're all at risk. You know, I think we've, we've put in as best we can systems in the hospital to try to monitor our own symptoms and to try to protect each other from a healthcare provider who might become ill. But we've already seen providers become ill across the country, some through direct healthcare contact, but others probably through their communities. So, you know, I think this is obviously something that, that we're all concerned about. And, and I, you know, I'd be lying if I said every time I have a little tickle in my throat or you know, a little ache in my neck, am I worried that I might get sick? Um, 
but so far, thank goodness, I've, I've been healthy and, and most of my colleagues have been too, and, and we're doing our absolute best to keep it that way. Well, we can't thank you enough for joining us and also for all the hard work you're doing to keep people healthy. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you to everyone for all they're doing in the community. And, and for those of you not in healthcare, you're doing your part by socially distancing and, and really being mindful of, of public health recommendations. And we can't thank you enough. It really makes a difference. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.